Okay, let's open the scriptures at First uh, Corinthians chapter one. And um, as I was thinking about this our conference theme this year, and what Chris is going to be speaking about is spiritual health. And uh, it's all about godly relationships, and that's going to be a great time together. And in our elective session, Phil Johnson uh, will be speaking about what makes a healthy church. Okay, what makes a healthy church, or what constitutes a healthy church? And that's something we all need to be well informed about, right, and know about. Well, this morning, we're going to look at it from another angle, and uh, we're going to have a look at one of those things that makes an unhealthy church. Thelma always says I'm a negative kind of person, and she's exactly right. I always tend to look at things from a negative point of view. Well, um, I think I'm in good company because the Apostle Paul focuses in on the negative here. <laughs> he, if you know, he said, okay, if he retitled this book, he could say, okay, what makes a healthy church? And you'd come to the church at Corinth, and um, he zeroes in on some of those problems and issues that make an unhealthy church. So let, let us read at the... Um, let us read 1 Corinthians and we're going to commence at verse 10 and we'll go through to verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you would say you were baptised in my name. Now, I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised any other. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Trust God will add a blessing to his word. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and this is a serious passage of scripture. But help us not just to focus in on the negative, help us to focus in on the positive, that being our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to learn from this, help us to take it in and be changed by your teaching this morning from your word. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. The idea of unity or togetherness, whatever tag you want to put on that, we often talk about it, and, um, but it often flees from us, right? Unity at so many levels, we really want that. We want unity, togetherness in the home. We want unity and togetherness in our marriages. We want unity and togetherness in our church that we, that we worship at. But, but it often flees from us. Well, we come to a passage of scripture today where the Apostle Paul gives us a recipe where we can enjoy unity. In our introduction to this letter, we saw in the first nine verses how Paul established the believer's identity in Christ. 
We saw that those who belong to Jesus Christ are those who have been called by God. They've been called, they've been sanctified, they've been set apart to him to be saints. And we had a look at that word. And so saints is a status word, it's a position of every true believer. And we also made the point that believers, when they evaluate, this is a positional truth, you know, because not everyone is a saint. And we even looked at the fact that no matter what man on earth, whether it's a pontiff himself, he cannot confer sainthood upon anyone. The true saint is one who has been called of God and of each who you are this morning who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And so to be called a saint by God is nothing better than that, right? Nothing better than that. We also noted that Paul did not start out by thanking the Corinthians. You note that? As he does so in many of the other epistles. He thanks them for what they've done and what they're doing. He doesn't do that to the Corinthians mainly because they had done nothing worthy of thanks. But he does thank God. You notice that in verse 4? He does thank God for what he has done in them by his grace. But as we'll see from here on to the end of the book, these believers, those saints, those saints, they were not behaving in a very saintly manner. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he addresses numerous sinful issues that are not becoming of any true saint. He endeavours through his teaching, through his instruction, as he did then, as he does now, this morning to us, right throughout the church age, he endeavours to change behaviour so that in the saint's, the saint's conduct might be more in line with their status, those who have been set apart, sanctified by God as a true child of God. So in this unit this morning that we have read from verses 10 to 17, what Paul does is he launches into the first problem that was raising its ugly head at the church at Corinth and it seems to be a primary problem. Hence Paul addresses it first. And that is the problem of division and showing partiality in the church. But of course, this morning, as you're thinking, this also could have application to your marriages to your homes and specifically to the health of this church. This kind of thing is not new as we discussed last time. Most of us have probably experienced church life where it has been ravaged by strife and quarrels and, and division and, and some will even have suffered the tragedy of a church split as we coin it today. Well, here we have a similar thing going down in Corinth. These believers had left behind, they had forgotten their God-given status of sainthood. They'd forgotten all its benefits and they'd given themselves over personally and collectively to selfish and fleshly sinful agendas. Okay, I'm clicking out here, in and out. 
So what was going down here was a recipe for disaster, folks. It was. It was a recipe for disastrous disunity in the church. And so what does Paul do? He urges, this is what the word means here, he urges, he appeals to them and he comes alongside them. All this is couched in the Greek here, in these English words that we have. He appeals to them, he comes alongside them and he gives them comforting instruction to behave in according to their position in Christ. Those who are saints, those who are set apart by God's special calling. Paul considers this problem so invasive and destructive to the church that he actually dedicates the first four chapters of this epistle to Corinth to this very issue. And so he begins to instruct them about how in the, in the power of Jesus Christ they need to rise above this problem and kill it because it's like a cancer and it has the potential for disunity, which, by the way, Satan uses and loves to use to wreck local churches. And so Paul does this by first giving us a standard for unity among the saints. Okay, We see this in verse 10 where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Here is the divine standard for the local church unity. So if you want to know what the Lord expects of his church, any church that calls on his name, if you want to know what that's to look like and be like, and what we are to be like with one another, here it is succinctly stated in verse 10, okay? So Paul delivers this, what I call a unity standard. He delivers it in three phrases. He says, agree with one another, let there be no divisions or schismata or schisms, that's where we get the word schisms from, among you. Let there be no divisions among you. And be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. That word complete there is like the resetting of a broken bone. It was a word that was used for that very thing. Okay? So he says, and be made complete in the same mind. In other words, if there's something broken here in our church or in your family or whatever, you need to reset it and fix it. But like many of God's standards for living, what we tend to do is to treat them lightly, don't we? Why is that? It's because they seem so unrealistic and impossible to keep and so we give them a flick in the too hard basket. But this standard for unity in the church is not unrealistic, folks. It's not. Even though agreeing with one another and, and being united in the same mind may appear humanly impossible, even for two people, let alone a whole group of people like we have here this morning or even any other church that might be larger, God does not give his standards on the basis of human capability of achieving that. No way, he doesn't. He gives us standards on the basis of divine provisions through the power of a spirit of God and to empower us to do so. So this is not an unrealistic standard. So what is Paul driving at in this standard that he's given? What he's doing here is he's stating that there needs to be the same purpose of mind. You know that? Same purpose of mind. That the church, that is, its people, its members, must never allow or let lesser priorities take their minds 
of the main thing. The church must always keep the main thing the main thing. Of course, for there to be no divisions and for us to be of the same purpose and the same mind, there must be something that we focus on, right? There must be a central theme. There must be a, a unifying element, a common bond that believers in the local church have. There must be that. There must be a main thing, if I can use that expression. And folks, true believers have that. Any true saint of God has that unifying theme, the main thing. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. When we are born again by the Holy Spirit of God, we come into a a fellowship, a holy eternal union with Christ that will never ever be broken. That's the commonality. That's the main thing. That's the main theme. That's the bond. Eternal fellowship with the Son of God is the basis on which Paul urges believers to be in fellowship with one another. He appeals to them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that there must be agreement in Him, in His will and in His word. Okay? So it's not about just being in agreement with the church's um, theological statement or, or an agreement with what the elders believe. Those are secondary and third and way down the track. That there must be agreement and, and unity in the person of Jesus Christ. Always remember, we need to keep clinging to that common bond that we have in Christ because when Christ is central, when Christ is, can I say, the main thing, things like quarrels and divisions will be held at bay. They will. I well remember being in a church where the centrality of Christ and a fellowship with him was shoved aside. Okay? It was shoved aside. All because there were so many personal preferences flooding the centre stage of the church at this time. And, and as soon as differences of opinion and ideas, as soon as they took precedence, and it was usually over something petty, by the way, as soon as they took precedence, quarrels and bitterness and division soon made its mark. Dear people, I praise God that we have been protected from such things in this church. And may it continue. But it will only continue when Christ is kept central. The moment Christ is not central in your own personal life, it will flood over into the church so that he will not be central in the life of the church. May it be central, he be central in our personal lives and our dealings with one another. Of course, when we see the standard for unity in the church, some will get the idea, oh, well, does that mean we've all got to be a bunch of clones? Does that mean that thinking the same thing is, is being like a carbon copy of one another? No, this is not what the instruction means here. Paul is not suggesting that the unified church will never disagree on issues. No, he's not suggesting that at all. Sometimes disagreements and differences of opinion are a very good thing, right? I'd value them because it keeps me honest. 
And it keeps me searching for the right thing and the main thing. Someone rightly suggested that diversity is healthy. We've got a diverse congregation here for a start. Different people, different countries, different ethnic backgrounds uh, and uh, different inputs of life. We, uh, there's so many differences here. Diversity is healthy. It keeps us honest. This is what someone said. Diversity is not a sin. Division is. You got that? So what like-mindedness and being made complete in the same mind and judgment, what it means is that there, there needs to be a joining together, a joining together and a unified pursuing of the will of God both inwardly and outwardly. That's what it means here. In other words, not only do we have Christ who binds us together spiritually, but we also have a body of truth in the Scriptures to bind us together in standards and attitudes and principles for right spiritual living, inwardly and outwardly. This does not mean that we all have to think the same, understand the same, and and never have different points of view. No. This does not mean that all conflicts and disagreements are divisive and at all costs to be avoided. No. It doesn't mean that. After all, you think about Jesus and his disciples. Did they have disagreements? Oh, yes. His disciples disagreed with him on a number of occasions. Several occasions Jesus put them right, especially Peter. Paul had disagreements with Barnabas, remember? Major one. The apostles themselves were a very different bunch of people and personality and temperaments and giftedness. And and one occasion, you'll remember this, that Paul needed, the difference was so great, he had to rebuke Peter. But all these men, they had one thing in common. They contended, you got that? They contended for the faith. Now, when we think about that contender, that's a confrontational word, right? That smacks of disagreement, that smacks of, of, of everything here. But they contended for the faith. That is, that they were of one mind on the fundamental doctrines of Scripture regarding the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are of one mind. They contended. They stood firm on these truths, and so must we folks. They were of one mind on God's redemptive plan and the power of the, of the gospel. That is, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. They contended and stood firm on those issues. You know, Jude, he appeals to his readers. He says, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We have that in verse 3 of of Jude. In other words, our unity must never ever be at the expense of truth as recorded in the Scripture. Truth that's made clear. You know, there's lots of stuff in the Scriptures, there's lots of things in the Scripture that I believe that we can have different ideas and opinions about. Now, in those areas, I know that there will be one right way, but because we're human, we cannot really nail them down, especially when it comes to like future events or whatever, because a lot of those details, we're not given clarity on them, and I don't believe there are fundamental doctrines of Scripture. There will be one right meaning and God has it. He knows it. And in his word we're given all we need to know about him and about redemption and about uh, future events, all we need to know. But some of those things we try and fill in the gaps with our own ideas. Okay, we can have differences on those but let's 
agree to disagree agreeably, right? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. So our unity must never be at the expense of truth. It must never be at the expense of, of throwing out or going weak on these fundamental doctrines. You see, the single most important doctrine that bound these believers together and bounds, binds believers together uh, with the Lord and with God and, 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 the, and the doctrine that will prove victorious in all our differences and, pre- and preferences is the very source of unity itself. And what is the source of unity itself? The source of unity itself is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His name, His glory, His gospel. It was preeminent to saints of old and so it should be to us. And even when times of conflict and disagreement come, and they will, by the way, they will, and they do, the first order of business for us to do and be is that we must reconcile those differences. In other words, it's wrong for us to hold a grudge or be bitter against another person in the local church because he holds this or she holds this and I hold this and, and we're different. And we don't talk to that person because you know they believe this and I believe that. Reconcile your differences. Go to the Lord about it. Come to the cross. Keep the main thing the main thing. When Christ is central, you know what disappears? Ego. When Christ is central, ego will have no place. Only the will of God will. Things like grudges and bitterness and pride, it will have no place when the Lord Jesus has given his rightful place in our lives and in the life of his church. No place at all. When the unity of the local church is disrupted by such things, you know what suffers? You know what is tarnished, I should say. You know what is tarnished? God's glory. We want to glorify God in this place, right? as I believe we have done, and in the future, for the years ahead, or however long the Lord keeps us. Well, we want to glorify God. Well, one of the ways of glorifying God is to be unified in Him. And when we think about this unity, understand that we do not create this unity. We do not create this unity. It's not about, okay, we've got to create unity in this place, so let's all be of the same mind in Christ Jesus, so let's create unity. No, no, we don't create unity. We don't even establish this unity. It's already been established. It's already been created. How? By God in Christ in us. We only keep the unity or we wreck it. So how do we keep it? We keep it. I love Paul's word to the Philippian church where he says, doing nothing from selfish or empty conceit but with humility of mind, counting others better than ourselves. you hear that? I'll read it again. This is how we keep the unity. Doing nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility, counting others better than ourselves. This is God's instruction for His church, for, his, for, for our homes, for our marriages, for our families. But particularly in, in relation to this text, for at the church. Our job is to put our differences aside and allow the Scriptures to focus our minds on the main thing, the glory of God and the power of the Gospel in Jesus Christ. So may it be that we focus on the right person and the right mission. This brings us to our, our second point, the divisive problem among the saints. 
We see this in verses 11 and 12. What we see here is Paul pulling, he pulls no punches, okay? He, he goes straight into it and he homes in on this divisive problem and he says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. So what was happening here in this congregation evidently was they were lining themselves up behind their favourite Bible teacher. That's an unheard of and unimaginable thing, isn't it? You see, these teachers were all excellent men and gifted by God and it was probably, what was happening was those men who preached and those who were saved under the preaching and the teaching of each of these men, they gravitated toward them those who evangelized and brought them to the Lord and taught them. They gravitated toward them. Anyway, the next thing that happened was that their prideful devotion of their teacher, what it did, it pitted itself against those who clung to other teachers of the word. You get the picture? Some clung to Paul. And why would that be? Probably, probably, because Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. He was a friend of the Gentiles, right? Wow, he sort of kind of broke out from the Jewish uh, audience. He was preaching to Gentiles. And he was making his message clear to Gentiles. And so no doubt a lot of Gentiles, wow, Paul's my man. He hasn't got this Jewish streak in him that he doesn't associate with us. He's my man. Some clung to Peter. And more likely, the Jews that were converted went Peter's way. Man, oh Peter, he's a Jew dinky die, up and down. Others clung to Apollos. By the way, I believe Apollos is the one who took over the pastoral ministry at the Corinthian church after Paul left. He was there for 18 months, remember? And Apollos, was a, he was the, site, the second pastor, as it were, of the Corinthian church. And we read elsewhere of Apollos, he was an eloquent man. This man could preaching with unbelievable eloquence. And so no doubt this man was a friend of the educated and the upper crust people who got saved. This man speaks our language. Can't say the Queen's English, but anyway, we'll say it for illustrative purposes. But that's not all. The last group, they claim to follow Jesus. You see that? You think, well, what on earth can be wrong with that? That's the group I would look up to but it appears to Paul that when Paul confronted them, he was, he was confronting a group that, that thought of themselves as, as a superior group. In other words, this group didn't care about theology. All they wanted to do was follow Jesus. That sounds familiar, right? And so if this last group, by the way, if they were truly following Jesus, they would, not have, been, they would have been bringing the church together, not causing division. Now, we're not told exactly how these unholy huddle groups impacted the assembly, but no doubt there was a good bit of you're not really spiritual until you follow my teacher going on. You're not really cutting it in the Christian pathway until you're devoted to my leader, my teacher, each one the same. No doubt there was a good bit of that going on. You see, what was happening was the party spirit would have created contention. 
It would have created squabbles and inevitable disputes among the saints, which equaled a divided church. This is what was happening. Folks, in our day, there are heaps of celebrity preachers. You may know more than me. You turn the tally on and you'll see them by the score. But amongst them all, you would no doubt get true ones and you certainly get false ones. Those who intentionally gather a following after them and those who unintentionally do also. So you have those clinging to celebrity preachers and the preachers themselves might do it intentionally or unintentionally. Now understand that there is nothing wrong and it is only natural when we value a Bible teacher, especially if he's the one who's led us to Christ. Nothing wrong with valuing that. It's only natural. Or, or maybe a teacher that has impacted us through teaching more than any other. It's only natural that we value and appreciate and thank God for them. I have several favourite teachers, if you want to put the expression on that. And you're probably thinking, yeah, I know which one he's talking about. I have several of them and I quote them from time to time. They're ministers of gospel that have impacted me through their teaching and through their, through their writings. And they've helped me understand. Their books have helped, helped me understand the main book a whole lot better. But folks, it becomes very wrong and misguided when our devotion toward the preacher, the pastor, the counsellor, whoever that person may be called, when our devotion segregates us from others in the church or decreases our love and respect for our own leaders or other true ministers of the gospel, what happens is that our devotion toward our hero, preacher, pastor is so driven by a self-centred will that what it does and what was happening here in the Corinthian church that it was excluding others which is the absolute opposite to unity. Absolute opposite. I know of Christians who don't really want to know you be, or have anything, any kind of fellowship with you if you don't follow and agree and are devoted to their favourite men of God. In other words, you are measured spiritually by the man you follow or don't follow. Sad when that ever comes to be. So folks, how careful we need to be, whether it be Billy Graham whether it be John Piper or whether it be John MacArthur, Calvin, Luther, Wesley or whoever. I think the likes of Luther and Wesley who have churches named after today were all over in their graves if they knew that that was going to happen. We must be careful that we don't follow these men at the expense of unity in the church and most importantly at the expense of being drawn away from the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel because that's what can happen. That's what can happen. This brings us to our third point where we see the divine solution for quarrelsome saints. We see this in verses 13 to 17. You see, Paul wanted no bar of this party spirit that was causing disunity. 
And so what he does is he confronts a problem with a central principle. And let me read the principle that I've got written here. Believers are one in Jesus Christ and they should never be so devoted to any man that it robs the Lord of devotion and loyalty that he alone is worthy of. And so what he does by confronting them, he does it by asking three rhetorical questions so that they would have a clear perspective of what they were doing and where were they heading. He said, is Christ divided? That's the first rhetorical question. Obviously not. He's not divided, right? Second one is, did I die for you? No. Were you baptised in my name? He certainly hoped not, and they weren't. In other words, he, this is what Paul said, since none of these mere men, including myself, bought about your new life in Christ, we should not be the objects of your devotion. Paul continues to hammer this point home by emphasising that, that he baptised only a very few of them because he did not want to see happening what was happening. He was repulsed at the idea of people cultishly following him. We see heaps of that today, right? There are cults out there, all in the name of Jesus Christ, people who gather thousands who would follow and empty their pockets to fill their coffers. Had a lady came in the church the other day and she's not here this morning. She said she was going to be, and uh, her and her husband, and... Um, She's looking for a church. And one of her reasons, I said, well, why are you looking for a church? She said, well, I'm sick and tired of people just wanting my money. And they've got big flash cars. This is what her language was. This is, and they've got big flash houses and they're building themselves an empire. And because she'd only been to one or two churches that wouldn't be of the same ilk as this one. But she was quite strong. So Paul was repulsed at the idea of people cultishly following him. You see, he had no authority to claim a following. You got that? You think, oh wow, the Apostle Paul, if anyone, anyone should follow their great apostle, he was the greatest apostle ever born. And, um, but no, no, the Apostle Paul had no authority to claim a following. You see, his only authority, his only authority was delegated to him by the Lord. In other words, the Lord says, Paul, this is what I want you to do. This is the, your authority. It was an authority. It wasn't his authority to own. It wasn't his authority to play a game, come and follow me with. His authority belonged to Christ for what? To bring men to Christ, not to Paul himself. You see, folks, Paul was making clear here that his authority, his calling to ministry was to preach the gospel, not baptise converts. That was important. He said, but let others do that. Let others do that. This is why when people are baptised, we've had occasions where I, some of the other elders or someone else did it. It doesn't have to be me at all time. Whether I baptise you or Steve baptised you or Bill or Peter or, or whoever, it doesn't make any difference. And so Paul kept away from that because he knew that people had a leaning towards this cultish kind of following. And so as I think about this, we claim here to be a Christ-exalting and a gospel-driven church. That's what we've got written out in our billboard on the, on the road. And may that be our practice as we, as we converse with one another in evangelism. But more than that, but more than that, more importantly, I believe, may we practice 
being Christ-exalting and, and, and gospel-driven as we fellowship with one another. Yeah, in the, in the local church. Because the solution, the divine solution that holds any division in its tracks is the gospel being practiced in our lives toward one another. You see, the gospel is just not about preaching salvation to unsaved. The gospel is about how we conduct ourselves right here. Because in the gospel, what do we have? We have Christ as one in the Godhead. And we have been what made one with Christ. There's unity there, right? We're accepted in the beloved one. This is what Paul told the Ephesian believers. He said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to the call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How more unified can you get than that? That's the gospel. Folks, may we learn to live out the gospel for in so doing it produces unity with one another and it's a powerful witness to unbelievers. It is, it really is. Jesus said the same to his disciples of this unity being expressed in love toward one another. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 30 and 35. He also expressed, and I mentioned it last week, um, in his In his prayer in John 17, he says, Father, that they may be one, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us and so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What a powerful witness. Unity in the local churches. The Lord prayed for that. Unity amongst believers. How true it is that Disunity over all sorts of issues continues to threaten the health and function of many churches. It does, it really does. May it never be this way. You see, the ground of unity is found in Jesus Christ alone. This is what we've been looking at as I draw to a close this message this morning. The ground of unity is Jesus Christ. He, he is the source of all of, of unity. Any other source of unity that may be fabricated is mere show and it will fail. I don't care how many good programs you have. I don't care how great a building you have. I don't care how great a musicians you have. I don't care how good the preacher or whatever may be. Unless Christ is central and that we're pursuing Him all other fabricated sources of unity will fail. He must be central. He's the only one who will not fail. This means that the doctrines concerning him in the scriptures need to be known and loved and when necessary contended for. Because unity at the expense of of doctrine is a farce, folks. It really is. It's a farce. That only serves, what does it do? It serves to satisfy the carnal mind and worst of all, it denigrates God's mission in the gospel through Jesus Christ. So when you get church, a church that sort of goes soft on some of those fundamental issues and sort of throws them out the back door and say, well, we'll put them into secondary state also that we may satisfy and be more open to people, you're on a downward road. It's a farce. My dear people, may we continue here this morning and as long as the Lord spares us to be a church 
that is unified on the right focus and that focus being on the person of Jesus Christ and also focused on the right mission as Paul was to preach the gospel. Why? So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. God bless his word amongst us this morning. As we close, just take a couple of minutes to reflect on some of those things that we have learned and read in the scriptures this morning and then I'll close with a benediction uh, and then we may leave. Please feel free to stay and chat with over coffee and tea to you later. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you.